Welcome to Old Flames. This is Lee, and I'm coming at you with another Storytime episode today. Um, this past week is the la- was the last week of the semester before finals. Uh, final exams start or are next week. So this is the point of the semester where I got to get caught up on grading. Uh, you know, next week is it, it doing final exams, posting grades, handling all the paperwork shit. You know, I got to do at the end of the semester all while being bombarded with dozens of student emails a day wanting me to round their 72 up to a 90. And I'm not making that one up. That's the actual email I got two days ago. Um, So I don't don't have time this week and next week to really sit down and and, and research and write an episode about a historic fire. So I didn't want to go too long without any new content. So I figured a story time episode would be in order. So what I'm going to talk about today is just a little bit about arson, how I ended up in the arson bureau. And then I'll tell you about one of my, one of many memorable cases that I had, but I'll I'll tell you about one of them. Um, Arson is a, is a crime is actually a lot more prevalent than people think. Um, it also has a relatively low clearance rate. Only one out of every four fires that are, that are determined to be arson are ever closed with an arrest. So 75% of them go unpunished. Um, the That one in four, that statistic is actually skewed because you have a large number of fires that are undetermined, meaning a, a definite cause can't be decided. Now, obviously, a good chunk of those are also arson, which would lower that that percentage from one in four to something like, you know, one in seven, um, truthfully, but out of fires that are classified as arson, only about one out of four are ever closed with an arrest. And that's just with an arrest. That doesn't mean eventual conviction, uh, on a charge of arson too, because that can change. Also, arson is a crime relatively happens in a vacuum. Um, a lot of times there is some other, crime associated with it obviously the one that should come to mind will be insurance fraud those are individuals uh, setting fires to either vehicles or houses in an attempt to claim or claim the insurance money um, so that's one type of crime you find with it but you also have others uh, it could be burglary uh, i've seen fires set to cover up burglaries fires set to cover up murders fires set to cover up uh, robberies I mean, you name it. So, uh, typically when you have arson, there's probably going to be another crime or potentially series of crimes connected with it. Arson investigation, and as far as authority and jurisdiction, it varies tremendously from state to state. So, for example, in places like, uh, and this may have changed in the time that I've been retired, I don't know, but places like, say, California, uh, Missouri, those are two states that I know of, off the top of my head, arson investigators are sworn peace officers. They are classified as peace officers, but they do not have full police powers. They can carry weapons while on duty, not while off, um, and they can, uh, may, but they can only make arrests for arson or a crime connected with an arson. Other states where, like where I worked, uh, we had full peace officer status we carried weapons uh, we carry you carried a gun on duty and off you could do anything any other uh, peace officer could do 
you know, we could write a traffic ticket if we wanted to. Though, granted, generally we didn't do a lot of traffic stops unless it was connected with something else that we were working, obviously. But um, but we could. We have full uh, full police power. Um, and so what you see with arson investigation is in some states, you'll have the fire department will handle the origin and cause part of the investigation. And once they determine it's arson, they stop and turn the investigation over to uh, law enforcement, either, you know, city police department, sheriff's department, something like that. Um, you have other states where arson investigators are sworn peace officers with limited powers, meaning they can do the origin and cause investigation, but they also can handle the criminal side. It's just, they can't do anything beyond that, that, that single kind of scope of that single case. And then you have other states where, um, you'll have separate arson bureaus. In some cases it's called an arson bureau. If it's say with the city, um, it could also be called a fire marshal's office and that could be city state or County where again, these are people with full peace officer, uh, powers, but they will come in and do the origin and cause and pursue criminal charges. But they also have authority to act in other areas as well. Um, once upon a time and up until relatively recently, arson investigation was sort of akin to reading tea leaves. Uh, there was a lot of old wives tales that have been, uh, reported, you know, passed down from one generation to the next within the arson community. Uh, about signs you could look for that would indicate you might possibly have an arson. Uh, things that used to be considered absolute 100% definitive proof of arson have now been proven to not be conclusive proof of arson. Um, and it's kind of technical stuff, so I won't go through all of it here. But um, arson investigation field today in more modern times is a, a scientific field. So as an arson investigator, I had to be able to qualify as an expert witness in court, and I have both in state and federal court. Uh, you had to meet the Dalbera standard for expert witnesses. That allows us to give opinion testimony. Uh, we're not just simply testifying to facts. We can testify to our opinion based on those facts. So it is a, it's, it's a lot more scientific, and there's a whole lot more training that goes into it, not necessarily entry-level training, but continuing training. Um, that you do throughout your career. Uh, it, when I was with the arson bureau, pretty much four weeks out of the year, so a solid month out of every year was taken up with training. Um, and in some cases it would actually go even beyond that. Um, I think at one point I logged 240 training hours in a single year. And that's all the stuff you have to do just to be able to testify as an expert. Um, and it's training in a lot of different areas. Some of it is more technical, you know, related specifically to arson. But because I work somewhere where we had full peace officer status and the way our agreement with the police department worked was that if there was an arson, we investigated, we handled everything connected to it. So we were the lead investigators for all of it, that whole scope of crime. So if it was an arson homicide, it's still our case. If it's an arson <clears throat> burglary, that's still our case. And so you had to, um, you had to be able to, 
work just like detectives and other fields work with the same knowledge that they have. Uh, we also processed our own crime scenes because arson evidence, accelerant evidence stuff has to be handled in a certain way. Uh, so we would process our own crime scenes. So we had to not only know how to collect evidence samples related to arson, but we also had to be able to connect to collect fingerprint evidence, uh, you know, blood spl- you know, whatever. We had to be able to, to process all of that ourselves. And we carried our own crime scene units in our in our vehicles, uh, collection uh, equipment in our vehicles. So again, it was a very, um, it, it was a lot to it. You know, it wasn't simply like, oh, I'm going to walk into this burned build- building and see if I can figure out how the fire started. That's just part of it. Uh, we had to approach every fire as a potential criminal investigation because you can't, fuck up your crime scene before you even know it's a crime scene and then try to go back and retroactively can't do that. We had to handle every scene the exact same way. So we had a set, you know, list of procedures that we followed. Um, some of the more interesting classes that I took were photography based because we also took our own photographs of our, of our crime scenes uh, or arson scenes in general. So, um, there was a lot to it. Now the, what made me decide that I wanted to transfer put in a transfer request to the arson bureau was that, um, you know, when I was a, a younger firefighter, uh, when arson guys showed up, I mean, they were like, I mean, they show up on scene and they were like, I looked at them like they were somehow like gods or something. Cause they show up in their coat and tie, you know, and all that. And it's, they just had this aura about them, you know? So, um, that's really what kind of drew me to that. There was a couple of different pathways you could take into our arson bureau. Um, I, uh, when I, well, let me back up. In order to take the exam to promote to lieutenant uh, within, you know, the suppression side, uh, you had to already have your um, fire investigator certification. So you had to already have taken and passed the state course where fire investigators are, that was required for all new company officers. So I'd done that before I took the lieutenant's exam. So when I promoted to lieutenant, spent several years as a lieutenant and then decided to put in a transfer request to the arson bureau. Now, the way that they did that was when you put in your transfer request, like they would only do this when they had a spot coming open. Um, so they would look at a couple of different things. Uh, you would get, points based on the your uh, oh shit what's the word I'm looking for um, your uh, seniority so you got points for every year you've been in the department you had you got points for uh, college education um, you know a couple of points for an associate's degree a couple more for a bachelor's a couple more for a master's you know that kind of thing um, you got uh, points for um, you got like a bonus points if you've gotten any uh, commendations, you know, and that could either be a unit commendation that went to one, a company or an individual commenda- commendation. And then they would subtract points for your uh, disciplinary write-ups, you know. Um, and then the Arson Bureau administered a transfer exam. So you had to pass an exam on fire investigation. Um if you pass the exam, they took the points that you had on the exam, added it to the other points that you had, and that determined their eligibility list. So in my case, uh, 
when I put in my transfer paperwork, um, there were five of us that took the exam. Uh, four of us passed. The other three all actually had more seniority than I did. But um, I got, I had a master's degree by this point, so I got quite a few points for education. And I'd also received uh, the department's uh, Medal of Valor, which was the highest uh, decoration that they gave. So that got me some more points that, so, uh, I ended up coming in number one on the list. So I was off on a Friday afternoon and I get a phone call from the chief who was in charge of the arson bureau. And, uh, he says, Hey, and I already knew that I was number one on the slot. So I knew it was just a matter of time, but I was expecting like more advanced notice than this. So he calls me on a Friday afternoon and he's like, hey, um, the uh, police department has a new police academy class starting on Monday at 8 a.m. Uh, <clears throat> you're in that class. So here's a list of all the shit you need to go around and buy for the police academy. It starts Monday. I'm like, well, what, what the hell am I supposed to work Sunday morning, you know? And he's like, don't worry about it. It's already taken care of. Just be at the police academy 8 o'clock Monday morning. So I had to go buy police academy uniform and books and all that kind of shit. And honestly, I was kind of dreading going through the police academy because we went through the same full police academy that the the patrol officers went through. I mean, that's, we went through the city police academy because at this point, you know, I was a little older than the normal police academy cadet. I was a veteran lieutenant from the fire department. I've been around for a while, you know, and I'd already done, you know, the academies are a lot of Mickey Mouse bullshit and it's all done for a reason, but it, it's still just a lot of bullshit. You know, and I'd already gone through it in a fire academy. So I was kind of dreading going through it again. Plus, I knew that I was going to be the only person from the fire department that was going through that class where everyone else had been hired by the police department. So I figured I was going to get a lot of shit from the instructors. Um, truthfully, it didn't actually happen that way. Um, they pretty much left me alone. Um, the instructors were actually required to address me by my fire department rank. Uh, they couldn't call me Cadet Hutch. They had to call me Lieutenant Hutch. Uh, and they, like, you know, well, tr the truth of the matter is, I knew how the game was played because I'd done it before in the fire academy. And so I, I knew what to do to stay below the radar, if you know what I mean. Um, so what I focused on doing instead was helping out some of the other cadets because some of the cadets, I mean, they had never had to, they didn't know how to polish their boots. They didn't know how to iron their uniforms. Like shit like that. So I tried to help out as much as I could. Plus, I mean, I not only have been through the fire academy and passed multiple certification exams in my fire department career, I also had two college degrees. I knew how to study. So I also made a point to try and help some of the cadets that were a little weaker on the academic side, you know, uh, just to try to help out a little bit as much as I could. And so the that's why the instructors kind of like, they just left me alone and obviously I still had to do the same things everybody else did, but they didn't never got in my face and yelled at me about anything like they did the others, which was kind of nice. Cause that's something I was not looking forward to going through that again. I'd already done it once. Um, but it, and it was Academy was like five and a half months long, something like that. Um, and it was, you know, we got to do some fun stuff. You know, we got to shoot guns and drive police cars on a, on these, uh, courses that they set up for us, you know, which was kind of cool. Uh, I guess, but, um, it was still a lot of 
drudgery too. A lot of boring days going over to traffic code and bullshit like that, which really wasn't all that applicable to what I was doing. And then I embarrassed the police department because I ended up being the honor, the top graduate in my academy class had the highest academic average. So made, they said it made them look bad. I'm like, no, that ain't my fault. You know, um, you could have hired someone smarter than me. You didn't. And that's, so that's on you, not me. But, um, and keep in mind, I'm no mental giant. So the fact that I graduated top of the class should really say something about the people that are in the rest of the class, you know, but, uh, but you know, as I got through it, the, the only thing that I didn't, they wouldn't let me do that the other cadets had to do was, um, they actually boxed in the Academy. You had to, uh, you had to box when we were going through the defensive tactics training and stuff. But, uh, cause the rationale being, you know, some of the individuals that they hired, I mean, they've never been in a fight before. And the first time you get punched in the face, you don't want that to be when you're on the street dealing with a bad guy, <clears throat> you know, you want that to be in a controlled environment, but the defensive tactics instructor, the year before I was in the academy, he and I, cause I was a boxer. So he and I boxed against one another in the annual police versus fire, uh, boxing tournament and not to brag, but I beat him and it wasn't close. So he didn't want me boxing any of the other cadets cause he didn't want any of them to get hurt because I was an experienced boxer. And I'm like, well, that's fine, you know, but at least let me do something, you know. So um, he let me kind of help him instruct a little bit, you know. <clears throat> and, and so I got to kind of help out that way then. So when I graduated, um, the way we did it was I, I had to spend a month working, uh, uh, riding out with a police department field training officer. So I had to spend a month where I was working basically like a patrol officer. Um, and then, uh, then I spent a month shadowing some of the police department detectives. And then after that, I spent four months as, um, basically a third person assigned to one of the arson teams. Um, so it's basically a year worth of training from the time I got that phone call to the time that I was fully released and given and assigned to my permanent partner. Um, and so it's, it's, and that was, you know, a lot of it's taken up with more law enforcement specific training, but also remember I'd already had the fire investigator course. I'd already done that um, before I transferred. So um, the way our schedule worked was we did not work 24 hour shifts. We worked 12s. So uh, you work 7 a.m., 7 p.m., 7 p.m., 7 a.m. Um, we had two week schedules, so you work four on, three off, three on, four off. That makes two weeks and you do two weeks of that, or you do that two week set on day shift followed by a two week set on night shift. And then, then you go back. So you're back and forth like every two weeks, you know, I've been retired for several years now. My sleep schedule is still fucked up because of that from that bouncing back and forth every two weeks. Not just that, but it wasn't just like a 12 hour shift because if we caught an active case, you know, an active arson case, you work that case until there are no more leads. So a, a big case, we might work for three, four days straight going on nothing more than a, you know, a quick hour nap, you know, here and there. Um, so that was not unusual. So we rarely only worked 
12 hours. You know, shifts are usually longer than that, which allowed us to rack up the overtime, uh, which was nice. And also, um, I'm still a lieutenant in the fire department, so we could work overtime shifts on the suppression side as well. Uh, so if, you know, I had, you know, stretch of days off, I could actually cover working overtime shift for someone that was out on vacation or sick or whatever. And when I got hurt, I was actually covering for someone working overtime shift back on the, the suppression side. So, um, yeah, cause no good deed goes unpunished. So, um, but that's kind of how we, how we did things. Uh, we were issued a take home car. Uh, I had a Ford expedition. It was white. Uh, the windows were completely blacked out with limo tent. Um, it was completely unmarked. There were no signs on the outside that it was a, it was a, uh, detective car. It even had regular license plates, um, not government plates. It had regular plates that came back to a made up person at a made up address it's called alias plates. Um, I did have now inside, I had everything that any other, uh, law enforcement vehicle had. I mean, it had a light bar across the top in the front and back. I had hideaway lights, um, in the front. I had a computer, um, you know, MDT unit. And then I had, of course, the radios and all the equipment for the lights and siren and everything. Um, but they're unmarked. So and these were take home cars, so we could take them home, uh, <clears throat> you know, drive it back and forth to work. So for several years, I actually didn't even have my own car. All I had was a city car because we could drive it off duty, uh, provided that, um, <clears throat> we didn't go beyond a certain radius uh, of the, of the city. Um, and even off duty, we could use city gas for it because we were always subject to recall. So even when you were off, if they had multiple cases come in, you could get called back to work. So uh, that's why we had kind of the freedom of movement, you know, with the vehicles. So I'll tell you the story of one of the, one of the crazier cases that I had. Um, I'd been the, I had probably, this was probably like four or five months after I was finished with all the training. So I was like fully working at this point with a regular partner and all that. Um, it was before Christmas. It was really just a, uh, like two weeks before Christmas, I think, uh, maybe 10 days, uh, before Christmas. Um, <clears throat> my partner and I had night watch. So we're working seven P to seven a, um, what we would normally do when we, uh, were working nights was we'd meet up at seven. Uh, we meet up and eat supper uh, at a restaurant, you know, somewhere. Um, with the arson bureau, especially night shift, because day shift you had to go out and do like inspections and shit. Because we also did criminal, we also provided the criminal enforcement of the fire code. Night shift we had a little bit more freedom. Um, we could kind of roam around on our own and and do what we wanted. So we uh, we would always meet up for supper right at seven, you know. So we were sitting down, uh, eating, you know. Um, it's maybe seven fifteen, seven twenty. Uh, you know, of course we had our radio with us. Uh, we, uh, hear the fire department dispatch to a garage fire at a residence. Um, <clears throat> within a few minutes of the first engine getting there, um, they immediately requested <clears throat> an arson investigator. Like normally we would, uh, at least in the policy was anytime we heard the department dispatch to a box alarm, meaning a work structure fire, we would respond. In practice, that's not what we did. Um, in practice, we would wait at least until the first engine company got there to hear their scene size up. Because a lot of times, 
you know, you're dis they're dispatched to a fire that turns out to not actually be a fire. Well, then we're heading that way for nothing. Uh, so we'd always kind of wait. Um, same with car fires, you know, stuff like that. We wouldn't respond to them unless we were requested. Uh, because a car fire, if the cause was obviously not arson, we never touched it. We wouldn't even go to the scene. Um, that's part of the reason why company officers had to have their fire investigator certification. So, um, so anyway, the company officer requests, uh, he gets on the radio and, and says, uh, you know, any 300 unit on the air acknowledged and 300 units were the RC units. So, um, I answered him on the radio and he said, yeah, can you go ahead and make this scene? And, uh, I said, yeah. So, uh, I asked our, our comm center to send me the, send me the info, um, meaning that they send it to my MDT in the, in a car, my, mine and my partner's MDTs. We had our own vehicles. We had separate vehicles. So we drive over there and, uh, this is a regular house and regular neighborhood with an attached garage, you know, uh, garage doors open. Uh, we can see when I get out of the car, I can see some fire damage kind of up in the front part of the garage. Uh, looked like there was a pile of stuff that had burned and some damage extending up the sheetrock. Um, so I, uh, the first thing I would do when I would get there, uh, would be in a Zenny scene. Um, I grabbed my camera and my notepad my well i had to say notepad it's actually kind of a big notebook um case book to make my notes in it um stick the camera in my pocket uh walk around to the back of the car um open up my crime scene kit i go ahead and throw on a pair of latex gloves and then i had a pair of um like glove gloves you know uh firefighter gloves stick those in my pocket and um then I would go and check in with the, uh, the, before I went, I'm sorry. Next thing I would do would be open up notebook to the page, write down the date, time, address, and then my name, my partner's name, um, and time being the time on scene that we got, we arrived on scene. Then I would go check in with the, with the, uh, incident commander who could either, it could be a battalion chief. It could be the the ranking company officer just go check in. Hey, tell me what you got or tell me what you found when you got here. You know, well, he tells me, he says, Hey, uh, look, when we pull up, the garage door was already open. Said that there was the fire burning. It said it looked like a pile of some clothes and an old recliner up in that front corner of the garage that was burning. He said, we actually knocked it down with a hand line. Um, you got smoke damage extended into the house. Um, but he said, here's the thing. He looks at me and goes, I don't know how to, he goes, I don't even know how to say this. I'm like, what? He goes, well, the people that are, the homeowners here, he said, they're saying that a ghost set the fire. And I, you know, I looked at him. I'm like, man, don't fucking bullshit me. I'm not in the mood for that tonight. And he goes, I'm not bullshitting you. That's what they said. I'm like, okay, ghost set the fire, you know? All right. Well, that's one I hadn't heard before. You know, so, um, and, and he's like, yeah, that's them over there, you know. So I, uh, walked over, there was a patrol officer there and I walked over to him and I said, Hey, uh, do me a favor. Keep an eye on the homeowners. Uh, my partner and I are going to go take a look around inside. And you might wonder, well, don't you need a search warrant to go inside their house? The answer to that is no, we don't. Um, we are entering the house solely Legally, we are solely entering the house for the purpose to 
a purpose of determining the origin and cause of a fire. Um, U.S. Supreme Court case Clifford versus Michigan gives us the authority to go in and conduct that investigation. So long as the scope of our investigation is limited to determining the origin and cause of the fire. That then we are legally inside the house because the fire department had control of the house. Now, if the fire department had left and we showed up three hours later, that's a different thing. But they had control of the house, so we could go into it. Now, other uh, legal rulings apply as well. So my partner and I were sworn law enforcement. We are legally inside the house because we are going in to determine the origin and cause of the fire. Any evidence of a crime that is in plain view, if we were to seize that evidence, it would be admissible in court because it is in plain view. But it has to be in plain view. If the fire is in the living room and we are searching through drawers in the back bedroom, that's not admissible because that is not connected in space and time to the fire. Um, likewise, any, of course, evidence of arson that we find inside the house, including accelerant evidence, empty gas can, you know, something like that, we are legally entitled to seize that evidence, and it is admissible in court. Okay, so um, when we go inside and we just do a quick visual, they had a, um, they had a TV, or they had TV, of course they had a TV, they had a Christmas tree up, and it's like, there's burn marks on that Christmas tree. Then we go look in the kitchen, and they had like a table in the kitchen. There's scorch marks all across the top of the, the table and coming up the kitchen cabinets where like somebody has obviously tried to burn this. Not like that day. It had been sometime in the past, but there has obviously been a fire set to this, to the cabinets. Someone's even set some of the uh, ornaments on a Christmas tree on, on fire because they're all melted and shit. Just a few of them, you know, like this is fucking weird. You know, so then I'm thinking maybe, maybe there is ghosts or something. I, I don't know. Um, so my partner says that he's going to go, um, uh, he's going to go back to his car and, uh, pull up the address history for that location and, um, uh, see if there have any, if the police department has responded out there for calls before, um, and, uh, there was no fire department call history that came through um, when our fire alarm dispatch sent it through. So we knew the fire department had been out there before, but he was going to go check and see if the police department had been out there. So um, I told him that I would talk to the, uh, the, the homeowners. But I made the decision that I wanted to talk to them separately because um, something wasn't right. You know, I, I just I couldn't put my finger on it. So... The, uh, when I walked back outside, the, um, the male homeowner, uh, was standing actually over closer to the house. So I talked to him first and I kind of pulled him off to the side. We walked back over to my car. Um, my, uh, and I asked him, I was like, so just run me through what happened this evening. And he told me that they had been out, uh, they'd gone out to eat and they had gone out looking for, uh, a new house. And I said, uh, okay, well, I mean, this seems like a very nice house. I mean, what is it about the house that you're not happy with? And he's like, well, there's ghosts in the house. And I said, oh, okay. I guess it would be a haunted house, huh? So I want to see why you're trying to move out, you know? And he's like, yeah. So I said, um, well, do you own this home or do you lease it? And he said, we lease it. 
and I said, okay, well, uh, if you don't mind my asking, how long is your lease for? And he said, it's for 12 months. And I said, well, how long have y'all been living here? And he says, six months. So you still got six months and you're planning to move out. I said, do you, has, has the, the homeowner, the actual owner of the home given you permission to break the lease? And he's like, no, but the house is haunted. You know, we have to, we have to move out. I said, okay. Um, so I'm like, what happened when you got home? And he said, well, when I got home or when we got home, he said, we sent the kids, they had like a 10 year old daughter and a 13 year old son. He's like, we sent the kids into the, they, they were, we didn't send them. They went into the bedroom, and play video games. And he said, my, my wife and I, we walk out to the back patio. And I said, okay, well, how did you know that there was a fire? And he said, well, my wife went back inside. And, uh, several minutes later, a few minutes later, she came back outside, said there was a fire in the garage. And I said, okay. Um, and I said, but I noticed when I was in there, I said, I know, um, couldn't help but notice there were some scorch marks. And he goes, yeah, that's, that's the, the ghost has been doing that. And I said, uh, okay, you know, um, and like, I, I figured he, he the, the thing is, I mean, I was pretty good at engaging the veracity of a witness. This guy was telling me the truth. Like he, he genuinely believed that there were ghosts setting those fires. Like I could see it in his eyes. He believed what he was saying was true. This wasn't like a crazy guy or anything like that. So, uh, my partner gets out of the car and he motions for me to come over. So I tell the guy, Hey, wait right here for a second. So I walk over and, um, the, uh, my partner says, Hey, he goes, the police department has been out here like multiple times, um, over the course of the last month for uh, prowler calls. Uh, someone calling in saying that there is, uh, uh, that they saw someone in the backyard or they hear something outside, whatever. And he said, it's all the caller is always the wife. It's never the husband. So I said, okay, that's kind of odd. Um, so my partner said he'd go ahead and handle taking the photos and stuff and let me keep going with the interview. So I, uh, walked back over to the husband and talking to him, he told me he worked nights. He worked night shifts. Uh, he was had a couple of days off. That's why he was home in, this evening. But he he worked nights. Okay, the wife's home by herself. She hears stuff. She calls in. Okay, so that that makes sense now. Why there's, those phone calls are being made? Uh, so I thought. Um, so then I go over to talk to her. I send him back. Uh, send him you know away. And they they had actually sent the kids over to the neighbor's house. So uh, they were safe over there. They're not in the middle of all this. So I. Uh, go over to talk to her and she basically re repeats what the husband has said as far as their stories, her story matched his to the extent that she said that she, um, had gone back inside the house. And then that's when she discovered the fire. Um, we, uh, the problem is the husband said she was gone for several minutes. Um, he said possibly as many as you know, like five or six minutes she said she was only gone for 30 seconds. So their stories aren't matching up on that point, which would be kind of a crucial point. So I, um, I confronted her and I said, look, your husband says you were back there for six minutes. We've already looked at it. There's no way. It's like, I'm standing there and I can smell the fucking lighter fluid. All right. There's an empty can of lighter fluid laying in there. All right, it, it's, I've been doing this long enough to know that that's what we call a clue and your husband's own statement has put you in the vicinity of the fire at the time it was set. 
So you better give me something here to make me believe you. And she said, well, I, maybe I was, but I, I didn't go. I went to the bathroom and then I came back and then that's when I saw the fire. I said, okay. So you went to the bathroom. She says, yeah. And I said, okay, well, that still don't change the fact that somebody set that fire. So was, and you've, you've already said that they had said the garage door was closed, um, at first and she opened it when she saw the fire, which not overly bright to do if you have a big fire in your garage, but whatever. I mean, that's, um, it's water on the bridge fire department said the, the door was open when they got there so i said okay well you know who set the fire she thinks about it for a second and she said maybe my son did it I said okay um so we've been talking for a while now uh, my partner had gotten done taking the photographs that he needed to take so he comes back outside i pull him over give him a rundown and he's like, there's no way that kid set the fire. And I said, no, he, I don't think so. But I said, do me a favor. I said, run into the bedroom and check and see if there's a, uh, like a video game pulled up on a TV. And he came back and said, yeah, there's a PlayStation game and it's paused. And I said, okay, well, that confirms what the husband said as far as where the, 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 the children were. So um, we uh, told him they could go ahead and go back in the house and sit down because we had what we needed. As far as uh, photographs, um, my partner had also grabbed some samples from around the, the area where the fire started in the garage, like from the recliner and stuff. Um, so we, we, the parent, the parents said we could talk to the son or we could talk to the kids. So we, we get the son first and, um, and my, I, I talked to the son and then my partner talked to the daughter um, and we just sat down, I, we sat down inside in the car. We sat in the front seat of the car, you know, me in the driver's seat, him in the passenger seat. And, uh, it's like, Hey, just tell me what happened this evening. Like what, how, what, what was going on? And, and he basically said the exact same thing that the, the dad had said. And I said, okay, well, how did you know that there was a fire? You know? And, uh, he, he said that he heard his mom, he heard the garage door, like the door coming into the house slam shut. And his mom yelling that there was a fire. And then, uh, so that's when they, he paused the game and he and his sister came out of the room. So I said, okay. Um, and I just asked him, I said, look, you're not really going to, you're 13. You're not going to be in a lot of trouble. If, if you set the fire, just tell me, you know, and he's like, no, I didn't. And I mean, he obviously, I mean, I could tell this kid did not set the fire. So, um, the, so I went ahead and said, okay, well, you hop out and go on back into the neighbor's house, you know. So he went back to the neighbor's house. My partner gets out of the car. He sends the daughter back over to the neighbor's house. She, the daughter, confirmed the same exact story the son had told. So now we know kind of what's happening. Um, we, uh, we, called the, we went ahead and called the district attorney, gave him a rundown of what we had. Um, the district attorney said that they're like, well, we'll, we'll, we'll we can accept arson charges, but it, it's probably not going to make it through PC, meaning the probable cause hearing, um, unless you, uh, unless you get a confession or you get accelerant evidence, which you won't have back from the lab, you know, soon enough. So, um, it's like, well, you, if you want to, take someone into custody you I mean you can that's fine but just understand that no confession means that 
um, means that you're not you're not gonna uh, you're probably not gonna the, the charges are gonna get tossed. Now you can always refile, but um, I said okay, well that's and of course and I'm thinking I'm like you know what because I'll be honest, I, I was pissed. I'm fucking pissed. I'm, I'm at, I was absolutely livid that she set a fire and then tries to blame it on her 13 year old son. Like that pissed me off because I've worked juvenile cases. I've had to take kids into juvenile detention. That place is hell on earth. And she's perfectly willing to throw her 13 year old son under the bus. Like, Oh hell no. You know, that, ain't, that shit ain't gonna fly with me. So, um, we go ahead, go back in the house, arrest her for arson, take her to um, to uh, police station, uh, stick her in an interview room. Now, at this point, she's in custody. We are intending to ask guilt-seeking questions, so we go in, do the full, and of course, this is all video. It's on video and audio recorded. Um, she waves Miranda, says she'll talk to us. Um, I hit her with the fat, with all the facts. Like this is it. This is what's happened. You know, I'm giving you a chance to tell me why. Like, I know you did it. What I'm asking you to tell me is why. Just help me understand what was going on. Because obviously with all these police calls prior to this, I mean, there's something going on there that we're not seeing. And she took a deep breath and then spilled her guts and confessed to it. What had happened was her husband had had an affair. Uh, with somebody that he worked with. Not only did he have an affair, but while having the affair, he picked up an STD, which he then gave to the wife. So the wife, realizing that her husband has a straying eye, she would do things like call the police when he was at work, like at night when he was at work, to the prowler in the yard. She set the little fires inside, trying to uh, get his attention. Um, but of course she didn't want to tell him that she was setting the fires. That's why she came up with the story that it was a ghost and that's what she, and she really had him sold on this. Um, but it was all a way to try and get his attention. Um, because again, she felt like he was, well, he had strayed, you know? Um, so she gave us a full written confession. And like I said, it's just a few days before Christmas. Um, the district attorney's office actually accepted five arson charges from this case, uh, one for the garage and one for all of the little fires that were set inside. Um, that's five first degree felonies. Now, the reason they did that was basically for a bargaining chip. So that if you know that the, they could tell an attorney, look, if you plead to one, we'll drop the others like that kind of thing. Or if potentially you lose a case on one, you can still proceed with the others. It's just a strategic move that they do. Um, but really all we wanted was the, the big fire, the fire that we were there for, um, in the first place. So, uh, she, you know, we, uh, turn her over to the, the jail. Um, then we got to write up, type up everything. You know, it's a, it's kind of a complicated process, but we have to do all the paperwork and all this kind of stuff. Um, and like I said, this was like maybe 10 days before Christmas. So we, uh, we waited a couple of days and then checked the county records, uh, to see if she was out on bond or not. Um, and she wasn't, uh, her, the bond was relatively low. 
uh, considering the, the charges. Um, all five charges made it through the probable cause hearing. Um, they were, so they were on the books. She had a relatively low bond because I guess she didn't have a prior criminal history um, of any sort. So um, we thought for sure the husband would, would bail her out. He didn't. Like, she spends Christmas in jail. Um, her birthday was like a couple of a few. It was her birthday was sometime between Christmas Day and New Year's Day, um, and but like closer to Christmas. Well, like she's in jail on her birthday. Um, so New Year's Eve, my partner and I were working, and uh, we were actually working a special detail uh, that that evening. So he and I stopped by to eat at this uh, at a at a restaurant. And we, we walk in and I'm like, Hey, look, sitting at a table with his arm around this other girl is the husband. So we're like, Oh, that's just funny. His wife's sitting in jail over Christmas and her birthday and new year's. And he's out with this other girl, you know? So, uh, we go sit down, we eat our food. Well, they're still there when we leave. And I, mean, I couldn't help it. You know, as we're leaving, I walk over to the table. I'm like, hey, man, how's it going? And he's like, uh, fine. I mean, he obviously knew who I was, you know, remembered me. And uh, I said, well, uh, how's your how's your wife doing? Uh, has she made bond? And he's like, uh, no. And I said, oh, okay. Well, you know, just let me know if you need anything. And I turn and I take a t- couple of steps. And I stop, and then I turn, and I go back to the table, and I did this on purpose. And I looked at him, and I said, hey, if you don't mind my asking, um, how's that uh, how's that gonorrhea thing working out for you? And from the look on the face of the young lady that he had his arm around, that was not the young lady that he got the clap from, and she didn't know that he had gonorrhea, based on the look on, the look on her face. So I'm like, oh, this is too good. I'm getting out of here before there's a homicide, you know, um, but we we were referred to this that case as the ghost case. It was actually one of the easier cases, truthfully, that we had. Um, but it's also the one that I, I heard the, the probably the craziest excuse as far as how the fire started it being a being a ghost. Um, last time I checked, ghosts don't go around setting fires. Now, I mean, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's probably not very likely, I guess. So that wraps up this little mini story time episode. Uh, So until next time, friends, take care of yourselves and each other.